Welcome to Common Ground Berlin, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in the German capital and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Today's episode is an edited version of our Twitter space that we did on September 28th. The topic was inflation. Joining us from Brussels is James Cantor. He's a journalist who founded the popular podcast EU Scream, which mixes news, opinion, and humor to help us understand the bloc's complex issues and politics. Welcome, James. Thanks. Hi, Soraya. Thank you for that nice introduction. We are also joined by Aggie Cantrell in Berlin. She's a journalist and video producer who is a tech reporter for Bloomberg News. Welcome, Aggie. Hi, Soraya. And our third guest is Ted Knudsen. He's joining us from Oxford in the UK, and he's a doctoral researcher in political economy and economic history who co-hosts Spaßbremse, a popular podcast delving into issues that highlight why Germany may not be the progressive paradise that many of us think. Welcome, Ted. Thanks so much for having me. Today's topic is one that's affecting billions of people around the world, and I'm talking about inflation. It's especially hard on the younger generation. Here in Germany, inflation has hovered well above 7% for half a year now. And a lot of people, especially the millennial generation, are coming into the job markets making far less than their parents did, and they can't afford anything. They can't afford homes, and they can't afford to raise kids. They can't even afford to retire. And of course, this is all being compounded by inflation. So we're going to start off by taking a look at how we got here. I mean, is it the Ukraine war, consumer behavior post-COVID, business practices, political ineptitude? There's a lot of finger pointing, Ted. Who or what do you think is to blame? I mean, I think you lay out the problem well, right? I mean, inflation eating into people's incomes. But I think a good way to start this conversation would be to emphasize that inflation per se isn't bad, right? Like there's studies that show up to even 10 or even 15% inflation, there's really ambiguous effects on economic growth. So what we're worried about is not inflation per se, it's decreasing purchasing power, it's decreasing real wages. And so the problem now is not so much that prices are going at you know 7 8%, it's that wages aren't keeping up with that. I mean, that's been a complaint all along, but it's certainly exacerbated when you're going to the grocery store and suddenly paying 10, 20 percent more for your groceries. No, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's the crux of the issue. But why I lay out that problem in the way that I do is because to actually address this in terms of a policy solution for it, you know, we, we need to look at what the problem at hand is, which is that purchasing power is decreasing, not that there's this sort of uh, this sort of set number for inflation, this rate that people are quoting. And I say that because there are, you know, effectively three main diagnoses for what's going on. The sort of traditional one, right, is that you're seeing sort of gain most currency with policymakers is effectively that there's um, been too much stimulus. Now there's too much demand. There's too much money in the system. The sort of old adage that inflation is driven by too much money chasing after too few goods. And so the idea there then is that we need to engage in both monetary and fiscal tightening, raising interest rates, um, cutting spending. That's ex- effectively what's been going on. I don't think that's necessarily the best diagnosis for what's happening because, as you mentioned, there's these issues with supply chains coming out of COVID. And there have been very high commodity prices, largely as a result of the war in Ukraine. And so if you look at that sort of second explanation, right, that there's commodity prices, and these are important because they're inputs into other goods. So if oil 
and gas gets more expensive, everything that gets produced with those things gets more expensive. And it creates this very broad-based inflation, even if it's really only coming from a couple products that would just go into the supply chain. That creates a different potential solution because then you're looking at more, um, rather than just trying to effectively cause a recession and create unemployment, as uh, in sort of the first explanation I was saying, now what you want to do is actually uh, try to reduce bottlenecks, try to cap prices of some goods strategically, or do actually targeted investment and spending and try to, to try to increase supply. Those are two of the main explanations and what I would just close out my kind of intro comments here saying, and why I outlined the, the problem in the way I did is because we need to make sure that our solution to the inflation problem isn't worse than inflation itself. And that is the direction I think we're going in currently. We're having one of the largest global uh, monetary and fiscal tightenings we've really ever seen. And so we risk plunging the world into a global recession just to cure inflation rather than addressing it in a targeted manner. Aggie, do you agree? And what about businesses? What role are businesses playing? I mean, we've talked about consumer purchasing power, but I'm wondering uh, if businesses are contributing to the inflation. Yeah, so I think especially in Ted's last point on um, the reaction to the current inflationary wave, what central banks are doing, that's something that has been really felt in the area that I specialize in, in tech in Germany and more broadly across the world. You're seeing essentially a tech sector that has really relished very dovish policies from central banks for a long time uh, and access to easy money. If you look at the amount of money that was flowing around, these insane valuations that tech companies were getting during the pandemic especially, um, you're seeing essentially a lot of companies that were benefiting from dovish policies that are now having to shift uh, significantly in their own policies and own strategies going forward and now they're being demanded by their investors to have a path towards profitability and so what you're seeing is going back to your point about how this is significantly impacting younger generations millennials and uh, gen z a lot of those people who are attracted to cities like berlin and the tech sector in those cities are now experiencing a much tougher labor market as these companies that have been focused on perpetual growth are now having to react to the new inflationary environment and the lack of money that is floating around because of VCs now being quite reticent to massively invest in particular areas of the tech sector. And so now you're seeing layoffs in the tech sector and also uh, less money going around for these newer companies, um, which is a significant part of Berlin's economy as somewhere that has attracted a lot of younger people to the city because of these good jobs in tech. And I think it's also worth mentioning that these inflationary pressures that have been seen at the moment because we are seeing these macro effects from, for instance, the energy prices and these broader effects on the economy. It can also be looked at in Berlin uh, specifically through aspects like the continued inflationary pressures on the housing market. And what's interesting there is then as someone who talks to a lot of people who work in the tech sector and also venture capitalists who invest in the tech sector in Berlin. Something that I see frequently is that people are worried that Berlin as a city and Germany more broadly 
potentially could lose its competitive edge in tech as a sector for investment if it isn't as attractive for young people to move here because the cost of living has gone up too high. And that means that essentially a sector that was growing in Berlin could potentially stagnate because of the current cost of living being too high for a lot of people who are moving to the city in their early 20s. A worrying observation indeed. James, let me ask you, is there something or anything that you would like to add from the EU level? And what about the effect of fuel prices on inflation? Yeah, I would certainly agree with everything that's been said so far by Ted and Aggie. I mean, it's worth pointing out that, you know, inflation started to rise before the war. You know, we had these 10 years of below target inflation. And in fact, you know, we were trying to get inflation higher. You just have to turn the clock back a year. And I mean, it was all very, very different. And these big changes seem to have been because, you know, there was this U.S. stimulation of the economy during COVID, which you could argue was an overstimulation of some sort. Then we had that absolutely crazy period during COVID where we couldn't get things out of China and China continues with its zero COVID policy. All of this may have set the inflationary spiral in motion, and it's only then that we get the war in Ukraine. But that's really important for the European story. And that's because, uh, as you were alluding to, Soraya, a much larger component of costs in Europe is energy, especially compared to the US. And then, of course, we've had some failed crops this summer uh, because of the heat. We had this depreciating euro, and all of that is exceptionally inflationary. So I would just sort of kick it off on that note that the war for Europe is that much more serious because of Europe's relative dependency on imports of fuel. Let me ask you all about something that Guardian columnist Arwa Mahdawi recently wrote. She criticized the multimillionaire president of an asset management behemoth, BlackRock, and some of his reported comments that implied young people are entitled and that it's about time they learned about how tough life is. Is that really fair on the CEO's part? I mean, are young people responsible for why they suffer disproportionately from inflation? Or is Mahdawi right when she says corporate greed has led to millennials earning less than their parents and that they can't afford to have kids or buy a home or even retire someday? So I would just say that a big part of, and this isn't just something that is uh, said by one CEO, but is a perception more broadly, which is that we've seen a massive amount of money enter the housing market in the last couple of decades. And the people who have benefited from that most significantly are older generations. And uh, while, as James was saying, the inflationary pressures from the war in Ukraine, while significant, they aren't something that are entirely new when you look at, for instance, the housing market, which has been experiencing the impact of some form of inflationary pressures for a lot longer than the last year or so. And so I think that what we're seeing now with the cost of living is the cost of material goods and the cost of things that people immediately need um, for their survival also impacted by inflationary pressures that the sort of things that you would invest in longer term, like, for instance, your housing or your education have also gone up. 
And so when people only look at the sort of basket of goods in, for instance, a CPI assessment of what inflation looks like, I think it divorces itself from the reality of being a younger person in an environment where the cost of living has gone up, but also your investment in perhaps future forms of wealth, like, for instance, the most typical one in Europe being your access to housing and owning your own home has gone up significantly in the last 20 years. So, James, you want to add something? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this about, you know, are young people suffering? To what degree should they be blamed? This is not just about young people. It can be about single mothers. It can be about pensioners, especially when it comes to energy poverty. And there's this phrase, you hear it a lot in the UK, is heating versus eating, right? And this stark trade-off, I think it's going to become a stronger and stronger rallying cry uh, as we go into the winter. And one campaign group, uh, We Move Europe, that I know has sent me their data and they've surveyed their community of like 1.1 million people and they got something like 25,000 responses. And, you know, this is just one survey, but the figures that they shared with me that came back were kind of scary because around one third of respondents in France, Germany, Netherlands, Italy, the UK, they said they didn't know how they would pay their bills this winter. And then for people in Spain and Poland, the figures come in at about half of respondents. The idea here that they emphasize is that the most vulnerable people in our societies are facing this tsunami of problems if they cannot afford to pay their heating bills. And they point out that single mothers and pensioners could be particularly vulnerable. And that's led them to double down on this idea, which is that access to energy at an affordable price should be something like human right. You would think. (laughs) But let's talk about some of the government attempts, at least here in Germany, to address inflation and energy shortages that are coming if they're not already here as winter approaches. And I'm speaking about Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who recently reiterated his pledge that people here will, quote, never walk alone as his government agreed on a 65 billion euro inflation relief package, which is funded in part by skimming off energy firms profits. But preventive measures by the traffic light coalition thus far far have failed to stop those skyrocketing household bills everyone has been speaking about. So, Ted, will this new package be the solution and will it keep Germany from plunging into a recession? Well, I mean, unfortunately, at this point, I do think a recession in Germany is probably a preordained conclusion right now. It's sort of a matter of the severity. But I think you're definitely right to talk about energy, um, specifically in the context of, you know, inflation, as well as just people worried about heating their homes, because, and James mentioned this uh, sort of at the outset of the show, is there's been some research on this about where the actual inflation comes from. And as recently as the summer, the data from like a month ago, uh, about 40% of total inflation in the Eurozone is driven by these energy prices. And so that creates a multifaceted policy problem, right? Because on one hand, you need to actually just offer people gas to heat their homes at a subsidized rate. And then you also need some other measures to make sure that firms can get gas that they need in order to produce different goods. And so there's been some action from the the German government in this direction. Um, My sort of feeling as as most things from this government is it's been, you know, something better than nothing, but not quite, um, not quite enough what's needed. And so, yeah, like I said, in terms of the recession, that 
looks like it's basically sure to happen. Germany has been finding other sources, particularly liquefied natural gas, um, and they say they should be able to make it through the winter without severe shortages. So it's not going to be the kind of economic catastrophe or full-on kind of deindustrialization um, that some people are kind of scaremongering about. However, um, it definitely is a long-term problem, not just for this winter, but for the whole competitiveness of the German economy in the long run, being a, a manufacturing export-based economy that needs a lot of energy input in order to sustain its entire business model. So this is this is not just a, a problem of, you know, how do we keep the house warm this winter? Although, of course, that's a huge concern for a ton of households, especially, as James said, the ones on fixed incomes. But um, yeah, it's going to take a lot of farsighted policy planning to address this in the long run. Well, Aggie, I want to ask you, do you think this is farsighted planning when the government is giving 300 euros to pensioners and workers uh, here this month or 200 euros to students? And I just want to point out that that 300 euros is taxed, apparently, which I found very interesting. And this is to help offset the rising utility bills, as well as a reduction in petrol taxes. They're talking about that. They're talking about maybe continuing this nine euro monthly ticket or some variation thereof uh, in terms of transit tickets, which we had this past summer that allowed people to travel all across Germany. But do these steps really ease the pain of inflation for people or is it just political window dressing? So the problem is that while there is the immediate effort to offset the cost of people's energy bills, essentially. The problem is, as James and Ted have both pointed out, um, energy essentially feeds a lot of other aspects of inflationary pressures. So once you already are dealing with an energy crisis and higher energy bills, those energy bills are not only placed on the consumer and on the German pensioner, the German student, they're also placed on German businesses. And so then you have the continued inflationary pressures of businesses that will also have to raise their rents, uh, rates as a knock-on effect from the energy crisis itself. So there is a political benefit, not to say that it is purely a cynical policy. It does seem to be an effort to help people. But there is a political benefit to say, this is cash you're going to get in order to mitigate the current pressures you feel to your energy bills. But what is a more underlying effect and something that could have a greater impact on consumers in the long run is as we see things like food costs go up and also when it comes to things that aren't immediately impacting the consumer, but things that down the line will have greater impact on the German economy and thus impact the consumer as an inflationary pressure that they can't immediately identify. We're seeing statistics about the cost for the construction industry of accessing materials. And in a country that also has a shortage of housing in particular areas, then you're seeing that the cost for construction materials going up essentially means that the cost of those projects go up. So while inflationary pressures have an immediate impact on things like your energy costs and your food costs, you're also saying things that may have an impact on aspects of the economy much further down the road and not just things immediately, and in which case the current government's efforts to mitigate those things can't just be consumer-focused. They also need to be looking at businesses and how to support the German economy, not just through looking at how to support consumers, but also about how to support businesses 
uh, down the line. James, what about from the EU level? I mean, are you seeing countries that are doing this better in terms of helping consumers and businesses cope with the inflation and with the energy shortages? Or is Germany doing it as well as anyone else? It's interesting you should ask that. I, I think the example that is continually held out is that of France, where the inflation rate is uh, a bit lower relative to uh, many other EU countries. And I think part of this is that you know, France has a certain degree of electricity self-sufficiency because of its nuclear fleet, where you know it can generate a lot of electricity at home without imports. So I think there is this sense that France, by subsidizing uh, households and so on and so forth, is leading the way. That said, I mean, there are efforts all over the shop in Brussels to try and get a handle on this so you don't have too much fragmentation within the block over, you know, with different policies doing different things. And certainly there's pressure from some member states on the EU to get all member states, uh, you know, singing from the same hymn sheet. And really, it's like a scattergun of policies. There are just so many of them. And, you know, to name a few, I mean, the really big ones that get the big headlines are, you know, whether to put price caps on Russian fossil fuels and Russian gas and uh, liquefied natural gas. Both of those issues are incredibly complicated with the gas issue still being stuck in the mud. It's a very, very messy area. One plan that the European Commission has called for is to cap revenues at 180 euros per megawatt hour. I think that's the current level in the latest document proposed. So a big part of the idea there is to free up cash for governments that are seeking to shield their consumers and industry from surging energy bills. And the revenue for that would come from producer power at a lower cost than the gas-fired producers. Remember that you know gas is the feedstock that is leading to all these raised prices because the electricity price is set by the highest cost fuel, <laughs> which happens to be gas. So at the moment, that would mean, you know, wind, nuclear, and coal fire power would all be subject to this kind of clawback. And there's talk that that could free up as much as 140 billion euros. So that's probably one of the flagship, like, let's take care of consumers and industry uh, policies. Uh, and then there would be a clawback of excess profits from energy sellers, so oil, gas, coal, and refining companies, but that would only come to 25 billion euros. So there are a few other ones about Brussels mandated cuts to electricity consumption. They're currently talking about 5% as a binding obligation here. Again, France in the lead pressing for this, but uh, a lot of this is yet to kind of go through the hopper and be decided. Ted, speaking about Russian fuel and our dependence on it, or gas in this case, natural gas, what impact does the damage that recently happened to the Nord Stream lines, which many are suggesting or not even suggesting, they're saying it was sabotage, you know, what impact will that have on the energy crisis given there is still dependence on Russian uh, natural gas, even though everyone is scrambling to try and, you know, fill up their reserves and not be reliant on Moscow any longer? Right. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned sabotage. I guess I'll, I won't. I won't delve into speculation on who the sabotage was from. I've certainly seen very, uh, very heated opinions on Twitter on different potential culprits for that. So I'll leave that off the broadcast for now. Um, but in terms of the actual impact, 
it sends more of a signal that a certain era of procurement of gas is over than it does actually affect the short-term gas crisis. Nord Stream 2, of course, uh, never came online, and Nord Stream 1 was not currently delivering any gas because Russia had shut off deliveries a little bit ago. So the actual impact on gas deliveries to Germany right now, um, in, in the short term at least, is zero. So it doesn't necessarily concern us in the short term. What it does is it shows that in a very sort of symbolic and grand way that, okay, this sort of model of energy dependence, energy procurement, and in some ways you could even say German foreign and economic policy of the last decade or two is now over. And I think it's... Um, it will be important in the sense that, you know, it will be hard to get the Nord Stream 1 running up again. I don't think 2 was ever going to go. Yeah, it'll be a marker of a new era that we're now finally realizing is here. Well, Aggie, let me take it down to the individual level again. I mean, here in Berlin, for example, all you need to do is look at your electric bill or your heating bills to see what's happening, you know, what the impact is of, of not just inflation, but of the war. But federal and local officials here in Germany are also talking about rolling blackouts and closing supermarkets early to conserve energy. And in Berlin, you can already see at night a lot of the buildings are dark, the ones that used to be lit up, whether it was monuments or landmarks or major buildings. Um, so I'm wondering, do steps like this make a difference? On one hand, it seems a little symbolic in terms of, for example, turning off the lights on the buildings. But, you know, is that going to help do the conservation that is needed in order for us to get through this winter? So I guess it's a much more difficult question to say whether or not it actually uh, is enough to conserve what we may need um, and to inhibit the possibility of rolling blackouts. But definitely Europe, not just Berlin and not just Germany, but Europe as a whole has sort of been reassessing its energy consumption during this crisis. I was recently looking, for instance, at uh, Germany's gas lanterns, especially in Berlin. Uh, They're an iconic part of West Berlin's infrastructure, these gas lanterns, but the average gas lamp uh, uses more gas within the course of a year than a single person household. Those sort of behaviors essentially see that there are a huge amount of areas in which energy conservation can sort of be put under pressure because of the current crisis. And you hear a lot of people, especially, for instance, from the Green Party that have been pushing for um, conserving energy um, in different ways for a long time and trying to find more efficient ways of managing the German economy and German industry, which are now seeing these companies turning around and saying, actually, we need to do this because the price pressures are now here for us to do something that was originally about greening the economy and now is about saving money. And so the fact that those two things are interlinked for a lot of people could potentially push for greater energy conservation in Europe going forward. But if you look at Berlin specifically, I think there are examples where you've seen a lot of the landmarks um, have their lights turned off and you see the public swimming pools uh, having to operate at a lower temperature. And I'm not entirely sure if all those things are purely symbolic, if it creates an underlying effect in which consumers think that energy conservation is actually something at the forefront of their mind. I think an interesting parallel to it is how a lot of people felt that wearing masks could have been something that was inherently symbolic. It wasn't. It was obviously important during the coronavirus crisis to prevent transmission. 
but an extra effect as well as preventing transmission is that it also meant that people had the coronavirus and the risks that it posed at the forefront of their mind. So it could be both. It could be simultaneously a very practical thing and also something that means that people are constantly considering the reality of needing to save energy. Well, that actually is a great segue to the next question I wanted to ask, which was about what people can do to protect themselves against inflation and the energy shortage. One friend of mine, I'll just give an example, you know, a couple of examples that I know about. One friend of mine actually bought a generator and he stocked up his pantry with water and food. This is here in Berlin. And for example, what I'm doing is cutting down on shopping and travel. And I'm actually setting money aside specifically to help pay utility bills down the road because they're talking about anywhere from a four to tenfold increase that's going to be coming down to us, you know, within the year. So I'm wondering if I can ask the three of you what you three are doing to cope with inflation or what you're hearing from friends, if you don't mind sharing it, and if there are any steps that you would recommend to people to help ease the pain of inflation or recession beyond waiting for the government to solve the problem. I must say, I I haven't really taken any specific measures yet, but I do think it's a long-term play, not just for Europe and not just for the various member states and, you know, not just for cities. It's really fascinating to hear about Berlin, actually, Aggie, and those are some very, very colorful examples of what's been going on there, but especially with the lamps, that's that's fascinating. But it is a long-term play for us because going into 2023, we have to think about this, you know, replenishing gas storage. You know, we've done that for this year in most member states, but in the new year, it's going to be much, much harder because that Russian gas will be at a very different starting point of next to zero Russian gas. All of this means that if Europe gets through this winter, you know, basically unscathed, there will be another year of energy anxiety on the other side, and it may just go on and on. And the Belgian Prime Minister, Alexander de Croo, he recently warned that, <laughs> watch out, there could be five to ten winters that will be difficult for Europe. So the idea here is to really think about, well, do I change my behavior in a rush? Do I change it over the long term? Because maybe our lifestyles could be changing profoundly. <laughs> I think that's a very true statement. Ted, anything you want to yeah. add? Yeah, I would just say... Um... I mean, I guess in addition to everybody, probably uh, going to the discount supermarket a little more and uh, wearing more sweaters inside, keeping the heat down. I'm not a, a personal finance expert, so I, that's about all I can can offer in that way. Um, I have heard of some workplaces in Berlin offering loans for people's energy bills, which is a bit grim. But yeah, to just to follow up on, on James a bit, looking at the sort of bigger picture as well, you know, you mentioned sort of a, a lifestyle change and how these harsh winters um, are not going to be, it's not just going to be this one that we have to make it through. And I think that goes back to kind of my initial point about how should we address this. And rather than sort of what we're doing now, which it seems like a lot of um, sort of return to austerity and not investing enough, is actually more targeted investments in things we need to withstand things like this, you know, whether that's insulation or heat pumps in houses, uh, more sustainable energy. So, you know, close your windows and, uh, and and wear a sweater this winter, but also try to, 
whatever sort of political action you can take to try to get governments to take those proactive measures um, and to actually look at how do we invest in the future and build a more sustainable economy rather than doing what we're doing now, which is just causing a recession to try to fight inflation, I think is going to create um, better winters in the future is how I would see it. I agree with that entirely. And it ties in with what I'm saying that not only do we have a problem with inflation and tackling that, but if Europe and you know the member states start investing like crazy just because they feel under pressure to do so in new fossil fuel infrastructure like LNG ports that are still going to take like five years to build anyway, and they keep coal power plants open for a lot longer than was originally planned before the crisis, you've got sunk costs in polluting uh, fuel generation and you are not making the transition. So all of this raises the question um, of, is this an opportunity? And is this idea of belt tightening, if we can somehow manage it, you know, the trigger for a transition away from fossil fuels that could reinforce the kind of energy security that, Ted, you were talking about? Let's check in with Stefano to see if there are any audience questions or if anyone out there wants to share what they are doing to ease the effects of inflation and the energy shortage. We do have one request if you want to take a question. Okay, Rafia. Hello, uh, everybody, and thank you for a very interesting uh, discussion. I have a comment and a question. A comment from the perspective of someone who writes for the Global South and is constantly (laughs) trying to help people think about and deal with perpetual energy shortages. And it's interesting to me that you mentioned the streetlights in Berlin, because I remember a conversation I've had before with like uh, Westerners visiting Pakistan, where I'm from, and commenting on how dim all the streetlights are. And I remember being really surprised at that because to me, obviously, and to most people who live there, they don't feel dim. But of course, in um, comparison with a Berlin gas lamp, uh, they are considerably dimmer. Um, So my question is, and it's a broad question, so I would love anybody responding to it, but particularly James, uh, you mentioned how this is a story of consecutive cold winters uh, with uh, these lingering energy problems in Europe. I'm really interested in hearing how you all think about how this will affect A, uh, the relations of these particular countries uh, to countries beyond Europe, like not Russia, obviously we know that, but just other countries. And second, how do you see this affecting sort of the socio-cultural narrative in Europe? Thank you very much. For time constraints, let's just have James take that since you addressed it to James, um, because we're not going to have be able to get all three answers in because we do have one more question before we have to close out. So uh, if you're OK with it, James, I will throw it to you. Uh, thank you, Rafia. It's great to hear from you. Look, the immediate beyond Europe uh, impulses for the European Union are to 
essentially start sucking up to uh, the fossil fuel producing countries in Africa and to some degree uh, trying to make overtures to the Norwegians to be really nice and lower their prices. So, yes, I mean, in terms of a sort of redraw of who the Europeans are nice to, uh, it seems like there is this effort to really, really butter up, shall we say, uh, a lot of the countries that, to some degree, the Europeans have been a bit condescending to over recent years, recent decades. And Rafia, you, I think you, you said, you know, what are the implications socially and, and culturally? Well, I think we all know that when people don't have enough money in their pockets and when, when there are these kinds of problems, you know, that means that it's, it's certainly a wider opening for far-right extremists to say, look, you know, migrants, uh, we need to shut them out. They're taking our jobs, free trade, that we need to revisit that. And uh, one can definitely see that there were some inflationary issues in Italy that informed the way that uh, a lot of working class people voted in that most recent election. So yes, I think there could be some very worrying uh, trends that are driven by uh, these kinds of economic signals. So my final question goes to all three of you. And again, we're a little bit short on time, so let's keep it as short as we can. How long can we expect this inflation to last? It's hard to predict, you know, if there's any other major shocks like the war. But I mean, I honestly think by by next summer, inflation will go back down close to previous trends. And that's why I sort of keep coming back to this issue is that I feel like on the course we're on is that our response to inflation is going to be worse than the inflation itself. And so to say inflation will will die down um, in the next several months is not to say that we're smooth sailing economically. I think we're actually going to get a, a huge global recession or, or even depression based on all of the um, monetary and fiscal tightening that's going on. Aggie, how long do you think we can expect to have this inflation and energy shortage? I think the real concern with um, the current inflationary pressures is that they may be able to be mitigated, as Ted says, by next summer as the energy mix is shifted away from uh, domination of uh, Russia's contribution to the energy market and the gas markets in Europe. But that is only one aspect of it. I think what is a greater concern is that while the immediate inflationary pressures might go down if uh, we do not match it with, for instance, increased wages um, and ability to support people's cost of living going forward, then uh, we could see, I mean, we already see that inflation is sticky, but the higher prices may be sticky as well. You may not see uh, exponentially increasing inflation for the next several years, but what you will see is that everything has reached a higher price and that wages remain stagnated. James, anything you want to add? No, I think that was put very well by Ted and Aggie. I really think uh, we're in for the long haul here. There seems to have been some fundamental changes in our economies. Thanks so much for joining us. Aggie Cantrell of Bloomberg News, Ted Knudsen of the podcast Spaßbremse, and James Cantor of the podcast EU Scream. Thank you, Soraya. Thanks a lot. Thank you. 
And thank you for listening to Common Ground Berlin. Our senior producer is Dina El Sayed. Our social media editor is Stefano Montali. And I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Common Ground Berlin is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Goethe Institute. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast. If you are on Apple, we'd love for you to write a review on Common Ground Berlin. You can also subscribe to and rate our podcast on Spotify. And be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com.